are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. Hey folks, Steve Angel here, and this week's episode is sponsored by both Bond and Nick's good friends, David and Tracy Belowski at St. Joe River Bows. Now, if you're thinking about a custom longbow or recurve, you owe it to yourself to check out St. Joe River Bows. David and Tracy have been making bows at St. Joe since 2009, where they started out making the St. Joe River Bows Classic model in both longbows and recurves. And then in 2010, they premiered their Torrent Recurve model. Now, often copied but never duplicated, this sweet little bow is offered in a 54 and 56-inch versions, and its smooth draw and snappy performance make it the perfect bow for hunting from a tree stand or a ground blind. And if you're more of a longbow shooter like I am, well, they also make a torrent version in a longbow, which just so happens to be the bow my wife shoots today. Now, myself, I prefer the classic longbow, but all of their bows are amazing shooters, and all are available in numerous grip sizes and types to fit every shooter. If you're not sure exactly what you want, Tracy is more than happy to work with you to figure out which style fits you best. And don't forget about their kid and youth models that come with St. Joe's amazing trade-up program so that as your child grows, they can trade in their current bow towards a newer bow that better fits their needs. And for listeners of the Traditional Outdoors podcast, David and Tracy will still throw in a free St. Joe River Bows t-shirt with any new bow purchase. So when you call them up, be sure to tell them that you heard about them on the Traditional Outdoors podcast. Now let's get on to this week's episode. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel. I'm joined on the other end of the line by my good buddy, Mr. Nick View. And man, I'm telling you, we have got a treat for everybody this evening. We have the Casanova of cast iron, the sage of the saucepan. And as Nick referred to him a few weeks ago, the Sam Elliott of Dutch oven cooking. Why, it's none other than cowboy chef Kent Rollins it is. How are you doing, sir? Oh, I am good, my friend. You've put a lot of big words in there on a title that I probably couldn't even spell, uh, you know, but uh, I'll keep looking for some of them things on the wagon. Maybe one of the days they'll fall out one of them drawers, I don't know. but no, thank y'all so much for having me on. Man, we have, I honestly, I think, uh, I know I've been looking forward to this for uh, for a couple of weeks now, and, and I kept teasing Nick for it, so uh, I know Nick was looking forward to it, too. Uh, so we we kind of know a little bit about you, and as we were talking before we we pressed the record button, I know there's a lot of people out there that know who you are, but for for the listeners we have that might not know who Kent Rollins is, give us a little bit of history about yourself. Well, I'm a I'm a fellow that loves life. Uh, my mother always taught me, you know, uh, you need to learn how to cook, to clean, and to sew. She said they'll come in handy. And uh, they all did. I don't do near as much sewing as I, as I used to. But, uh, you know, it, it did come in handy on a lot of ranches when I'd have to sew somebody up that got hurt. But uh, I'm just, uh, I'm a guy that never has had a real job. Uh, you know, my dad taught me to find something you like to do, do it well, you'll never have a job. And uh, cooking's always come easy for me. Uh, my mother taught me to cook when I was seven, eight years old. And uh, to stand in the kitchen with a, a bunch of old women that never had a recipe uh, and always made something that was worthy for kings and queens to eat on a, a dollar budget, uh, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And uh, I, I admired every one of them because I never seen them use a measuring spoon, a measuring cup. It was, uh, you had a little of this, you had a little of that. And I would ask them, how much was that? And it's just like I tell them in my videos now, it always say, 
just the right amount. And uh, that's the way it's always been. And uh, went to cooking for, for elk hunters uh, probably first back in the early 80s in the Gila Wilderness in southwest New Mexico with a, uh, as a guide and an outfitter out there for a while. And it was the same thing as being a chuck wagon cook. You just packed it in on a mule or, or a horse and uh, got out of there and got thinking about the different ranches that I'd worked on and some of the old wagon cooks that I knew. And I thought, you know, I, I believe I'll just buy me a wagon and go to cooking. And uh, I can remember the, the first ranch I was ever on cooking was about 70,000 acres in South Abilene, Texas. And it was one of them deals where the cook always made twice what the cowboys did. Uh, I was making $60 a day, so they was making 30 and I had an old man sitting there in camp one morning, and he said, you know, we ain't getting rich. And I said, no, but I said, uh, I don't know if anybody's got a better view out their kitchen window than I do. And uh, from that turned into, you know, cooking for bar mitzvahs from Brandon's to weddings to uh, doing a bunch of stuff for the Food Network, Discovery Channel, people like that. And um, never even dreamed of a, of a YouTube channel or a cookbook you know, for a long, long time, was just pretty happy to to cook three meals a day for people that uh, I knew were doing an honest job in places so remote that uh, GPS can't find them most of the time. Well, it sure sounds like it's been a, a an interesting journey thus far. I know um, listening to a lot of the videos, and, and it's funny, my, my youngest daughter, um, she's in her, her second year of college, and when I when I was talking to her about, you know, I'd been watching some of your videos and I was thinking about reaching out to you to be on the, on the podcast. She, she looked at me kind of funny and she said, I think I know who you're talking about. And sure enough, she came back to me later. She had found where you were, you know, the, uh, I forget what they call it, the grill, grill masters or whatever that was yeah. that they, that they did. And, uh, she was, she was kind of tickled about it. So she never listens to the podcast, but I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't listen to this one. So. Uh, well, that goes for uh, same experience for me. Most of my friends, you know, outside of the outdoors who I've, you know, talked to a lot since this whole COVID deal happened, they, you know, I said, yeah, we're, we're interviewing a, a cooking cowboy tonight. And they said, oh, you mean Kent? And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and I, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know you were as big as you were, as well known as you were, but they all knew who you were and from different videos that they saw so no matter where they saw him but they saw him and uh it was it was really it was really a treat and i think they all uh they all are gonna listen to this one too and they never listen to the show so i thought that was pretty cool <laughs> well it's like i say we've i've been really blessed uh all of my life and um when shan come along my little sweet wife uh you know she sort of took things to a different level for me and um I didn't know about computers much. Uh, I had one, but I didn't use it unless I just had to. And um, she got me to, to doing a whole lot more writing, which uh, I wrote poetry for a long time and a lot of stories. And uh, she asked me one time, we was coming back from catering for a bunch of people because we catered for about, well, I did for 21 years before we just got so busy. And we'd coming out of Foley, Alabama. And uh, I was telling her it's about a 19-hour ride back to the house, and I think I told her, a story all the way from one end to the other and she said we get home you're going to write a blog and i said if you'll have to spell it and tell me what it is for i can write it uh, <laughs> but uh she's uh 
she's very smart, very talented, and if people know of anything of our cookbooks or our YouTube channel or website, you know, you'll see that uh, she's very artistic. She has a great eye on a camera, and uh, she's sort of what got this uh, to a million and uh, 300,000 subscribers, and um, hey, we just have a good time every day and are just blessed that people take time out of their day to watch it. Well, yeah, she you, does a she does a fantastic job. Sorry, Nick. Oh, no problem. And you both work really well together. You know, she ch chimes in when she chimes in, and and it's you know I like the little moments that you catch that. And I I did yeah. have I did have a question for you because you said this kind of just you know you started cooking and this kind of came to you the cooking part. But I actually you have a lot of charisma behind the camera, and I think that's what probably draws a lot of people in. You know, other than the awesome shots of the huge egg McMuffin sandwiches and everything else that you're cooking on there, which got me immediately. But it's entertaining. I mean, my wife watches cooking shows on TV all the time, and I get I'm really bored. But I'm not bored when I watch you, though. So, I, was that natural for you to do get in front of the camera, or did you have to work at it? No, I mean, I, I never worked at it. Uh, I, I never was uh, real talented. I'll put it that way. Of being in front of people when I was in high school, made a D in speech class. Uh, and I can remember some of the first TV I did. We was doing a show in L.A. for Home and Family, and Christina Ferrari was the host at the time, and she said, now this is going to be live, and she said, there's liable to be three million people uh, watching this. Does it bother you? I said, I can't see them, ma'am. Don't bother me at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's always been something. I've had a lot of producers, when they'd get through, they'd say, you know, we love to film you because you never change. And I said, sir... Uh, I change socks about once a day, and I said, but that's the only thing I've ever changed in my life that's um, that's got to be different. And I said, people just need to be who they are and uh, not be something they're not. And I said, and where I was raised and the people I was around, uh, you just uh, you let your action speak for your words and who you were and what you could do. And it wasn't about a title. It was just about uh, being what you are. We could use a lot more of that these days, man. Indeed. Oh, we could. Uh, we really could. Um, and that's, again, like I was telling you, I don't remember if it was after I pressed record or before, but, you know, that was that was one of the things that that endeared me about you that, I, I, you know, I really wanted to get you on the show was just that genuine. You can just tell it's genuine. I, I mean, it's you can – a lot of us can tell when somebody's fake and a lot of us can tell when somebody's genuine and, and – Everything about you seemed to be genuine. Um, well, it's, um, you know, I, I got bucked off a lot of horses in my life. Uh, my dad always told me, he said, luck ain't got nothing to do with it. He said, you either hang on or you hit the ground. He said, just remember when you're in midair, uh, they give it all you got because it's going to hurt when you get there. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's something that uh, the old men that I was around, and I don't mean that in a bad way, uh, they were just elderly people, uh, great cowboys. They stood like uh, tall oak trees. I mean, they were big, stout uh, people that loved God and family and country and loved what they did. And um, it was a deal that I, I'm glad I got to be around it, glad that it helped shape and mold who I am. And um, people could use a, a whole lot more of them old men if they were still around. Yeah, I, I agree. And I had some of the same, I had some of the same things growing up. So, um, I don't know, uh, 
there's probably not as many years difference between you and I as as you might think. But uh, Nick's Nick's the young the young kid in the room. Uh, yep. he, he's a, he's a good bit younger than I am, but I will say this, Nick, and, and you don't know this. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share some stuff with you, but Kent's a pretty good writer too. Um, I picked up one of his, his, his oldest cookbook, uh, I guess a little over a week ago now, uh, and I'll be getting the other one very soon, but there's some, there's some really, there's some really good stories in there short most of them short one page page and a half maybe but um i haven't gotten through all of them yet kent i've got probably two or three more i think that i still have to read but i can already tell nick nick will like it that's just the kind of the kind of writing you you kind of write the way you do everything else it seems a lot of it comes straight from the heart so and I'm looking yeah. forward to it, and uh, I'm actually kind of looking forward to to cooking too, um, because I don't can I don't cook a lick, man. I, I I had my I'm from a Polish family, and my mom and my grandmother and everybody cooked all the time. My mom's an exceptional cook, and my dad's gotten there as he's gotten older, um, but my my wife's always just done the cooking, and I've never really other than grilling, haven't done a whole lot, but. You know, watching watching two or three of the videos today, I was kind of like, man, I can do that. That's not that bad. And uh, yeah, it's what I do is not rocket science work. I promise you. No, you make it seem really simple. And you know, to to me, it might not be that simple, but it really does. You know, seem that way. Even even the uh, I watched the cowboy coffee one today, and because I've always you know we camp with the Michigan Longbow Association three four times a year, and you know I'm always making percolated coffee. And I've got one of those pots and everything like that, too. But, you know, even just the simple way you make that coffee. I did it tonight on the stove, and my wife came home and said, what are you cooking? And I said, I'm actually, I'm making coffee. She said, you're doing what? Looks like you're boiling over. I said, no, it's a rolling boil. It's a rolling boil. That's right. <laughs> it's a, and that's how it gets smooth, and you keep it for four minutes. Yeah. And I was telling her this, and I made her the coffee, and she said, this is awesome. I said, I know, I haven't yeah. done that before. But I know that ain't cooking, but that's just a simple thing that just seemed more attainable. Like I was doing it wrong the whole time and didn't really realize it, you know? Yeah, it makes smooth coffee. It does, and... Uh... It's always something I told people uh, through the years. Uh, coffee that smooth will make you friends you didn't know you was going to have, and uh, you'll always have something to visit with. So, on the topic of cooking, since Nick opened that door, we'll just I'm going to jump into a, some to some of the the questions or or discussion topics that I wanted to bring up, Kent. And Nick, I will tell you this: um, I know. Well, I don't didn't know that you don't like to cook, but I did know you like to eat. And I will tell you that indeed some of this can be a little bit dangerous because I made the mistake of, of making Kent's banana bread, and uh, I may have to start up a new exercise regimen just for that alone. I think at this point I've made it four times now. My wife, who said, and I quote, "I just really don't care for banana bread." Not only did she eat a slice of the first one, she actually asked for a second slice after the uh, at at one setting. And then this past weekend, my my daughter was home, and I made another one, and I I kind of went uh, off script there a little bit. Ken, I I threw about a quarter cup of uh, semi sweet chocolate morsels in it, and there you go. And you know, half of that thing left with her when she went back to school. 
So <laughs> that is good. That that's a happy meal right there. <laughs> that is. But uh, tried the I tried your your approach for fried chicken last night. That turned out really good. Um, and I've got a list. In fact, uh, my my wife's actually making a a run to uh, get some groceries and stuff tomorrow. And after we finish recording tonight, I'm putting together my shopping list. And she did actually make the comment the other day that she was actually kind of enjoying this whole thing of me getting into the the well, uh, that's good the friend, cast that's iron cooking always it always helps when you have one more cook in the family you know it does and i will i'll be honest there's a couple of reasons that i kind of started or or thought about getting back into this and there's a little backstory here i'll tell it really quick but we had a um we had a garage door failure uh, a couple months ago and we had to have a new garage door and garage door opener and all that stuff put in and one of the things that we had to do was we had to move some stuff around and make room for the for the installation guys to work when they came and put this in and as i was moving some stuff around i ran across a um a 10 inch uh, cast iron skillet that i'd used on a camping trip years ago and did what i usually do i got it too hot cooked all the oil out of the doggone thing and then it rusted and I kind of set it aside and just forgot about it. And when I ran back across this thing, I said, you know what? I'm actually going to restore this thing, re-season it. I know exactly where to go and look. I pulled up some of your videos on doing that. Um, did the re-seasoning process and, and just started out basically cooking some uh, sausage and eggs and yeah. It went from there. I mean, I, like I said, I've been kind of doing everything with it. Now, I know I know, kind of my story there, and there's some other things we'll probably get into as far as my failures with cast iron in the past, maybe help others avoid those pitfalls. But um, it seems like to me, and maybe it's because I've been, you know, I have been focused on watching some of your videos and so forth, but it, it definitely seems to be a resurgence right now. Um, in the use of cast iron for for cooking is is that something you've seen as well and and you know what do you what do you think the contributing factors are to that well you know cast iron's been around forever and ever and um, I've got pieces that were handed down from my my grandmother and my mother and um, some of the some of the smoothest best looking stuff I've ever had in my life but it's um, it's the natural way to cook there's nothing uh, that's more healthy for you to eat out of than cast iron. Uh, they used to always tell these people down here where I was from, you know, in this little southwest corner, when uh, they'd say, you know, you don't have to never worry about none of them kids having an iron deficiency because we know every household is eating out of a cast iron skillet. And uh, it is true, you will absorb some iron from it as you cook with it, especially if you're baking with it more than frying. But it's uh, something that's durable. Uh, it's something, I mean, you can mess it up, but you can bring it back to life. Uh, I used to tell people in seminars all the time, you know, if a nuclear bomb dropped today, I said there would be three things that's left living in the world after it was over. And I said they all start with C. And uh, they'd say, what? I'd say cockroaches, coyotes, and cast iron. <laughs> I said it will all survive. And uh, it's... Uh, it's an investment. That's what I want people to know. It's something, sure, it may be a little higher to buy than you can buy some of this tea fall or some of this stuff that you don't really know what you're eating after you got it cooked. Um, but it gives back to you every time you cook. And if you take care of it proper, it will never wear out. It'll outlive us all. 
And I really think people are going back to something that's more natural to cook out of, something that they know they can get more flavor out of, and uh, something that's healthy. Well, and and you may have said this. I'm sitting here trying to follow along with everything you say. I think the biggest thing for me, I can tell, I can definitely tell a difference. I know it's not in my head that food just tastes better, especially the long. I think the longer you use a, fr- a, a cast iron pan, but definitely after, you know, the first time frying some some bacon or some sausage in it, and then you know cook some chicken or something, it just it has a better flavor to it than it does yeah. out of Teflon. Um, yeah. My wife is not a bit, she, well, two reasons she doesn't like it. One, the weight. She doesn't like the weight yeah. of the cast iron. Um, and I think mentally, you know, some of the the oily, um, the oily residue or feel sometimes, I guess, to, you know, cast iron, especially after it's seasoned and possibly some of the and that's mostly on me, the grease spatter that I always end up walking away with. I don't think she's very fond of. But the good news is as long as I'm the one cooking it and she's not having to do it, hey, I'm not getting any complaints. So <laughs> I understand that, my friend. And it's, you know, that's a drawback that Cast has, hired, has had. Um, not so much in the, you know, back during the Depression and all the, the 40s, the 50s, and even the 60s, because that's what everybody cooked with. That's what their mother had, their grandmother had, you know, and it was just something that um, weight was part of it. Uh, but people need to know that that weight is also saving them money because that's heat retention. Uh, you can get that skillet hot enough to cook and you can turn that burner down. You're not using as much propane or gas or electricity um, because it's holding heat, uh, cast iron, Holds heat well if it's uh, if it's a good cast, and uh, it's something that'll save you money in the long run. Yeah, and I've I've definitely noticed that, especially I like I like frying you know sausage or bacon and then turn right around and and scrambling eggs. Yeah, maybe not in all of that that grease, but you know enough of that grease that I still get that that flavor and little bits of yeah. bacon and sausage. But um, you can I mean you can take the pan off the off the burner and and take a little bit of time and then turn around and throw the eggs right in there. It's still, it's still oh, going yeah. to be hot enough to cook. Now the flip side of that is, and I think you've mentioned this in, in some of your care uh, videos, but you got to keep that in mind when you take it over to the sink to clean it. You, I mean, you, you really need to let those things sit on the stove for a little bit before you put even hot water to it. Cause yeah. that cast iron can crack on you. If, if you definitely don't hit it with cold water. Yeah. Uh, cast iron does not, uh, Two, two things that it really hates, one is rust, and the other is a shock. You know, if that goes from uh, something that's really, really hot to somebody putting cold water in it, you know, I've seen a lot of them crack uh, through the years, but it's uh, it's easier to clean than people think. You know, I, I don't take mine right off the stove uh, and start, but uh, they're always easier to clean up after you use them if you'll do it uh, then instead of waiting until an hour from then, you know, right. and we, we make a wood spatula that's made out of mesquite. We sell off the website that is, is good to clean cast iron with because you never want to scrape metal against metal. And, uh, that's why we use, uh, wood. Uh, you're not, uh, deteriorating or scratching your seasoning off. Uh, it'll just last longer. Yeah. I, I've got to get one of those. I think, I can't remember if it was that or the handle 
covers that you were out of stock when I ordered what I did a yeah. couple weeks ago. But I'm definitely going to be getting one. I only I only use the uh, plastic ones at the moment. Yeah. But I will say once, and this is from somebody that's had his struggles with cast iron in the past. But um, once I reseasoned this one, and it's just a lodge. It's nothing fancy. Although I do want one of those field um, twelve inch skillets. Bad, but it's just a plain old lodge skillet i've always had problems in the past with food sticking but after stripping it down um going through i think i went through a four cycle process for reseasoning it and then you know i just started cooking with it and it's amazing i mean i everything oh, i've yeah. cooked with it i let it cool i take it to the sink i run water over it and either take a just a little um like a one inch square bristle brush um and rub it or i'll take a just a, a towel and wipe it out and everything come, i mean it's nothing sticks to it yeah they're they're easy to clean after you've got them properly seasoned and uh, man just always need to remember that after you've got them clean you know you need to even though you've dried them you need to heat them dry enough to where you can uh, season them back and uh, they'll last a lifetime so the the skillets in my opinion, as far as cooking at them, are, are fairly, fairly easy. I've still had some nightmares with that, too, in the past, but fairly easy. But I, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, Kent. I have tried cooking in a Dutch oven a couple of times. Um, watching some of your videos, I realized I was pretty much going about everything completely the wrong way. Um, I've cooked, I've made chili and some other dishes in it usually over an open fire and usually i'm getting it too hot and probably not rotating it enough and so forth so a lot of that information has helped me but the first question i would ask you and this is this is directly for me but i'm sure there's some others out there that that will benefit from this for someone who has little to no experience cooking in a dutch oven Give me your A number one. Here's your go-to recipe to learn how to cook in a Dutch oven. That'd be cornbread, my friend. Cornbread is the easiest thing to bake in a Dutch oven. Uh, as you begin to learn to cook in one, any baked good that you have in one will begin to separate from the edges of the, the rim. Uh, on the outside there, you'll see shrinkage. And cornbread pulls harder than anybody else. And what cast iron is telling you is uh, that bottom is near done. And we need to remember it's not T-fall, stainless steel, copper, or aluminum. You can actually take it off the coals that you're baking it with, and it's still cooking. You ain't going to walk by there in five minutes and pick it up and run off with it. Uh, <laughs> most people start out with too much heat, you know, and I... Very seldom do I, I put heat directly under something unless it's like a baked potato or a casserole, something that I know I can stir. Sure, I do have to target some heat in places when the wind's blowing 40 miles an hour and put one coal right under the middle of a Dutch oven to get the moisture out of a double-decker cake that I'm cooking. But uh, too much heat um, is one thing that, that really hurts a lot of people because it really takes less than what you think and coal placement. You know, if you'll go around the sort of the outside edge of where your Dutch oven is sitting, and and uh, I never used them for years, uh, and that's what we call a trivet, something for a Dutch oven to sit on while you're cooking. Uh, I just cooked on bare ground when I was out there in the mountains, or I'd use three rocks, but 
Uh, my dad was a farrier, so we had a lot of horseshoes growing up, and I got to making um, trivets out of them. Uh, we sell more than we can ever get a feller to make now, and we've got adjustable legs to where you have like a three-inch height or a five-inch height, which makes a difference. You know, if you're cooking breads, cakes, pies, cinnamon rolls, something like that, I try to stay on a tall trivet because usually I'm so busy I might have 10 other Dutch ovens going at one time, and uh, that way I know I've got a little more barrier that I can go with with time. But um, it's, uh, there's three things you need to really remember when you start cooking with a Dutch oven, and that's practice, practice, and more practice. So I've got, and I've got several more questions. I'm going to ask you one real quick, and then I'm going to give Nick a chance to, to pipe in. Right. But uh, so if, if for someone starting out, and I've I got a feeling I know what you're going to tell me, but um, do you – do you typically recommend maybe get the feel of doing this in a Dutch oven, maybe using your your kitchen oven or uh, maybe even the stove? Or do you recommend just going ahead and jumping in with both feet and, and working with the fire? I, I would, uh, I'm going to relay it back to what my dad told me so many years ago. You know, we, uh, we're going to get on that horse uh, <laughs> and we're going to go. And uh, I might not have went real long the first time, uh, but uh, that's where it started. And it's, uh, if, if you just sort of pay attention, um, you know, to, to what's out there and realize that, you know, if you've got some good hardwood lump or good hardwood you're cooking with, that it's going to make a good hot coal. And, and all wood makes a different coal from softwoods to hardwoods. You know, there's some that's better than others. But uh, just remember, it just takes less heat. But I would tell everybody, hey, you know, get you some cornbread, uh, get it in your Dutch oven, and uh, let's get out there and cook. But you need to remember when it says preheat your oven in a recipe, that ain't preheating that cast iron Dutch oven. You know, sure, you want to warm it to room temperature if you're in cold conditions before you start. But the only time I ever preheat a piece of iron is if I'm uh, going to sear a piece of meat. And I will definitely keep that in mind. And I do have a question about the uh, the hardwood lump but i'm gonna i'm gonna give nick a chance to jump in here because i've been rambling and i tend to do that sometimes any anything anything on the top tip of your tongue you want to throw out nick well you already took the two i had that i didn't tell you that i had (laughs) i think it's funny that you asked the beginner questions when the beginner's sitting right here in this chair (laughs) when it comes to when it comes to cooking in a dutch oven i'm with you i've uh, again i've tried chili a couple of times and and i ended up with successful chili but it was a it was a mess to clean up because I over I just I definitely got things too hot I overcooked it. Um, well, so. um, actually, that was one of the things that I, that I, I I would like to start contributing more to the uh, to the family, and um, I really really like breakfast food. That's like the only meal I like to get up and really like do something with that I haven't done in a long time and. Uh, there was one particular recipe that we have a lot in the Michigan Lombard Association. We have a lot of cast iron and, and Dutch oven um, cookers. And uh, basically, Caroline Wells, every year, a dear friend of mine, makes this Dutch oven French toast that is unbelievable. And I look forward to it every year. In fact, most of the experience I have with cast iron is at these special events that we go to. Like we don't really like I, I don't 
I don't really get to have it unless I'm at those events. So I've kind of always associated that with gather gatherings. But that's one thing I'd like to do is cook more more breakfast food, I think. And uh, I don't I, I don't know, Kent. What would you recommend to get started with? I mean, would you would you recommend getting started with just like skillets and and eggs? And my 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 uh, mom always used to cook us these big skillets with just all the meat and vegetables and stuff in them. And she used to put cook it on cast iron, and that's my earliest cast iron memory. But that's kind of where I was going to going to start. Is is there? Well, it's uh, you know breakfast. I used to tell folks on ranches because uh, breakfast come early. You know, when you're cooking for cowboys, um, I've, I've had breakfast at 3.45 in the morning and I've had breakfast at 4.45, you know, depending on what time of year it was and where it was geographically as to what time that sun was going to peak over the hill. But, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can fry you up some bacon in a Dutch oven, drain the grease out of it or sausage, either one. Uh, Crack you six or eight of them cackleberries, or hen fruit as I call them, in there, scramble it all up, uh, put you some uh, some jalapenos, some uh, cheese of your choosing, uh, set it back over there on that Dutch oven, put the lid on it, put you a few coals on top, and just let that cook through. And uh, it's in, in a way, it's sort of like a quiche. You just didn't add the milk or the cream, but uh, we've got a recipe for that too in our new cookbook. But Hey, breakfast is, it's easy, and to me, breakfast cooked uh, over an open fire probably is one of the meals that um, just seems to bring more flavor. Oh, I'm totally with you there. That just, it seems like they just kind of go hand in hand. Um, yeah. And, you know, and she, and she did it, Caroline did it in a real cool way where she, she stacked them. Like she yeah. had one on, she had the skillet on top of the, of the French toast cooking in the Dutch oven and all that. And I always thought that was the coolest thing watching her do that. Um, but you're right. I mean, it brings people, her camp, it brings people from all corners of the campground over to her, over to her place because she always puts out a spread like that, but they can smell it. You can watch them just coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, uh, we, we did some videos on stacking Dutch ovens and, uh, the only, really the real reason that I ever stack a Dutch oven is I'm, I'm conserving fuel. Uh, I've been in places where, I mean, it was some sorry wood to be cooking with, or it rained, or it snowed, and wood was wet, and uh, you just had what you had. But uh, when you already have heat on top of a Dutch oven, and you can use that top heat for the bottom heat of the next one, where you know you're, you're already saving money because you're not heating cold ground or wet ground. Oh, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now, when you guys were talking about pre preheating a Dutch oven or, yeah, pretty much a Dutch oven or a skillet, now it's coming from a total newbie. Like, what is what is the, what do you actually mean? Do you just put it on there and start it or and just start cooking or what, what do you got to do there? Well, if it's, you know, you, you look at any recipe in any cookbook, if it's a, a baked good, especially, they'll always tell you preheat the oven to 350, mm -hmm. you know, and um, that's if you're making biscuits or something like that. And, uh, you know, you preheat that oven in the house to 350. So when you put that bread in there, you know, it begins to cook. Well, if you preheat that same piece of cast iron, uh, to 350 degrees and you put them biscuits in there, that raw dough, it's not having a rise time. It's already immediately cooking, oh. you know, and it's, uh, 
So you don't want to start out with a preheated piece of cast iron, especially if you're baking. Uh, they're, they're the greatest instrument in the world to sear a piece of meat in. You know, I, I've done some, some 48 ounce uh, porterhouse uh, in a Dutch oven or a skillet, either one, to where you sear them. And uh, they just hold that heat so well and they get so hot uh, that it's more of an even temperature. But uh, I tell people that a lot, you know, don't, don't preheat just because the cookbook said to if uh, you're baking something because we want them biscuits to have time to rise, not just go to cooking. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Steve, I have some questions about some of the videos, but if you've got more of the actual using the cast iron questions, you should go ahead and ask them now. Yeah, just uh, a couple more. One of them is actually um, Gene Bramlett. I, I shot him a text, um, and I know you know who Gene is. I don't think you've yep. ever met him. But uh, anyway, he, he gave me one question he wanted me to throw out there with a kind of a trailing question to it, so I do want to get that in. But um, it's funny, Kenji was talking about breakfast, and some of my fondest memories um, with my when my dad, when I was younger, we used to – couple times a year we would we would head up into the mountains of north carolina I, I was born and raised in north carolina and we would go trout fishing and there was just nothing better than breakfast uh on top of those mountains off of a coleman gas stove and most of the time he was cooking in old you know cast iron pans and to this day it is probably my favorite thing to eat when i'm outdoors is is breakfast and i don't it just it it tastes better the whole everything about it's better and I, I still don't know why other than just nostalgia but it was kind of cool that you brought that up yep it yeah. just feels right yeah so the 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 topic that that gene brought up to me i'm gonna start off with the the easy one of of his <laughs> his questions first but i know you're a you're a big proponent of the the hardwood coals um yes and Gene was actually on this show. He's he's a good friend of mine. He's local. He his 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 um his screen name or his handle or whatever you want to call it on some of the traditional bow hunting and traditional archery websites is the Dutchman uh, because he would cook a lot of stuff and bring it to different events or gatherings within the traditional archery community. And he most of the time cooked in a Dutch oven. But he is a uh, or has been a briquette man so you know he'll yeah. he'll make his he'll get his chimney and get his briquettes hot and and he just i mean he said what you know in your opinion what are the advantages to using hardwood um lumps or hardwood coal over you know just plain old charcoal briquettes well number one is there's so many foreign substances in a charcoal briquette to hold it together uh and I know that uh, what they're made out of, um, to hold that together, ain't some of the best fumes in the world. Sure, you're not, you may not be uh, consuming that uh, by mouth, but it's just, it's not a natural thing to me. And it's, uh, they've all got formulas. And uh, for people that use it, I'm not telling you that you can't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an old stick burner from way back, and uh, they can put, six coals on the bottom and 12 on top and they're going to tell me it's 350 degrees and i usually tell them and if the wind's blowing 60 miles an hour out of the north what is it <laughs> you know it's, it's a microwave uh, is what it becomes but uh those briquettes are going to burn out so much quicker than a good piece of hardwood lump 
you may have to refire an oven. Uh, they'll ash out quicker. Um, it's just something that's always going to put you out more heat uh, than they do, and they're going to last you longer. Now, I'm not talking about going out there and burning some pine. I'm talking about, you know, some good mesquite, some good red oak, some white oak. Probably the hottest two woods there is out there is either what we call Osage orange or Bodark, uh, hedgewood, you know, or ironwood. Uh, it's a very live snap, crackle, pop fire that's hard to contain if you're in a drought conditions cooking, and I've been in them most of my life. But it's uh, the harder the wood, uh, the hotter the coal. You know, that's the way it's always going to be. And the, the softer the wood, the less heat you're going to get out of it and the less time it's going to last. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not telling everybody they got to go out there and uh, cut the neighbor's tree down and let it cure and use it. You know, they sell hardwood lump nearly anywhere in the world now. But it's uh, when you get to where you can uh, use it, uh, I think you people will know that their money ahead. And people ask me, they say, well, what, what is your ratio to using uh, how much on the bottom and how much on the top? And it depends on what you're cooking. You know, there's, there's not a set example uh, uh, for what it's going to be. There's always less heat than what I tell people uh, that they think they need to start with. And you make, a, you make a ring around the outside edge of that Dutch oven. If the wind's blowing, you know, 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, you pull that ring farther away. Um, one side of that oven's going to heat a whole lot more than the other side, and that's where rotation comes in. You rotate the, the Dutch oven itself one way, uh, the lid the opposite direction. That way you even out any hot spot if you've got more coals on one side or the other. But still, that cast iron's going to tell you when it's near done on the bottom because it's going to separate. Very interesting. So I know I know Gene's going to love hearing this. Um, he'll probably hear, he'll probably get a kick out of the next one though, because this was kind of his too. Was um, if if the hardwood if the hardwood uh, isn't available, uh, what about using buffler chips? <laughs> have you? <laughs> I have a you know old cookie going down the trail, and when I mention old cookie, that's an old chuck wagon cook that was uh, actually doing the same job I have, but he was back in the eighteen seventies day, you know to. The, 1901, 1902, uh, cooking off a chuck wagon, feeding a crew of, you know, 14 to 17 cowboys, two meals a day. And uh, there's a lot of country that he passed back then that sure don't look like what it does now. Uh, and they'd carry a possum belly on them wagons, which was just an old steer hide or a deer hide, something like that, that was stretched underneath that uh, wagon box in between the wheels. And, um, you know, if he had a what they called a hood, which was somebody that helped him, or some if one of them cowboys was riding by and you seen a stick of wood, you throwed it in there. Because a lot of this country here where I'm at, you know, back in the 1870s and 80s, there wasn't many mesquite trees. There wasn't many trees at all. Uh, but there was a lot of buffalo and uh, a lot of cow chips. And they burn hot. Um, they, they'll smolder a long time and smoke. Uh, I don't recommend you grilling with them, but I have cooked with them. <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. I can definitely appreciate that. I will say it. I actually had it on the in the back of my mind and was going to mention it just a second ago, and I forgot. Um, I don't know if you realize this or not, Kent, but your statement about uh, Osage Orange and and burning it. I'm sure we probably had some some traditional bow hunters and and primitive bow makers that 
that kind of just sort of cringe jumped, jumped up and stomped off from <laughs> yeah. the podcast but but uh yeah. yeah that that osage does it burns it yeah, i know it burns hot i think i was thinking i was yeah. thinking the same thing just walking up to <laughs> walking up a couple of friends and said man that'd look really good as a lump in my fire cooking some of that cast yeah. iron <laughs> there was a a dear friend of mine that uh made my bull ropes for years when I was riding bulls for about 16, 17 years. And uh, he was a longbow man. And um, he made a lot of, lot of bow, a lot of them out of bow dart or Osage orange. And uh, he'd go through the whole process. He'd come over because tree rows were planted in this country back during WPA days. And, you know, there was always two trees that was in them. And that was bow dart, you know, and a, and a elm tree. And, uh, a lot of the Indians in this part of the world, sure, they made a lot of bows out of elm, but because uh, that old bow dark or hedge was just too hard for them to work. But old Rysinger would uh, take some of that and slab it out, uh, strap it on a piece of iron. He'd throw it in a pond a while, then cure it under the house and uh, go to whittling on it. And um, all the limbs were wrapped with sinew. And uh, he'd bring me one of them back to, to try out one season and, they was nearly too pretty to hunt with. I've I've seen some of those myself. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of those ones. Have you ever? So I, I got to ask you, Kent, since you went down that that trail. Have you ever? Have you ever shot a a, a primitive or traditional bow much? And have you ever hunted with one? Oh yeah, that's you know we uh we didn't have much growing up, and uh, there wasn't even any deer in our county uh, till up in the. Oh, late 79, 80 along in there, you, you begin to see a track, you'd be horseback, you know, and you'd see some, uh, because when, we, when we'd go hunt, if we was to hunt deer, we'd have to go to northeastern Oklahoma or southeastern Oklahoma, you know, or up in the panhandle to where they had some mule deer, but uh, it was always uh, a longbow, you know. It, uh, it, I remember one of the old first Fred Bear bows I ever had, you know, was when I was... 18, 19 years old was a 50 pound pull and uh, shot it till the limbs broke off of it, you know, <laughs> but it's, um, it's something that, um, you know, is rich in tradition. Uh, Rice Singer, that guy's telling you about that made him, uh, he was a, a good a marksman with a, with a longbow as anybody I've seen. And, you know, his would be anywhere between 80 and a 90 pound pull. And it's, and y'all know it, you know, it's a snapshot. You, you ain't going to anchor that thing and hold it long. And, uh, I used to whistle up quail, and I'd see him shoot him with that longbow, and uh, he was good at it. Very, very cool. Very cool. I had no idea. I didn't even, never even ask you when I was sending emails back and forth. But that's, it's, it's always interesting. We've had a, we've had a couple of guests on here that we, you know, have them on for some reason other than traditional bow hunting, and and you get to talk and you find out there's some traditional archery or traditional bow hunting in their in their background yeah. which is which is really cool you know i taught my my youngest son to hunt i mean my oldest son to hunt when he was nine years old uh i rattled him up a uh a 12 point buck and he shot and he thought after that it was with a rifle he killed his first one with 30 30 and he thought with after that man you know you kill a big deer every time you go out <laughs> And uh, he couldn't pull a longbow, so I got him what was legal at the time in Oklahoma, you know, a 45-pound, one of them that's got all the pulleys on it. I call them training wheels. And um, he learned to sit in a tree stand and appreciate that if you got to see one deer, 
you know, uh, you, you got to see something that you might not have seen. It wasn't about the hunt and the harvest. It was about the hunt and what did you get to see while you were there. Kent, you have no idea just how much you just fit into everything that we that we try to talk about and, and, and do on this show. That that was pretty much it in a nutshell. Um, yeah, I was, I was kind of well, just sitting here just shocked. Like, oh, <laughs> so, oh. You know, I, I learned from guiding hunters a long time ago. Um, you know, I, I've seen uh, a lot of game in my life, and, um, you know, I, I admire it. I, I, don't, I don't have the time much to hunt anymore, um, and, and haven't harvested a deer in probably, oh, four years. And, um, but it's, I still go, but I don't take a weapon. I just go and I go to the places to where I knew I used to see a big old deer and I wonder if he's still there. And uh, it's just a way, especially during bow season, it's not near as hectic as what rifle season or primitive firearm is. And uh, it's a whole lot more relaxing. I was actually going to ask you about that, uh, Kent. Um, I, I know you you cook a lot on the trail and whatnot, but do you ever do any like uh, are, are you the are you the chef in a chef in a hunting camp, or have you ever you know you you said you you cook for for guides and stuff? Um, what what is your favorite thing to prepare and cook in a situation like that? I guess like a, just a small hunting. Well, camp. The, we did a uh, some friends of ours uh, hired us to come to South Dakota. Oh, two or three years ago and cook for them at, at uh, their deer camp. And their deer camp was nothing like any deer camp I've ever been in my life because there was about a, I don't know, a 60-foot wall tent. I thought was going to the circus when I first pulled up and seen it, you know, because uh, I didn't take the wagon. But um, it was, you know, they had an old wood stove in there, sort of like what I have called Old Bertha. And um, I don't. I don't care what kind of fire you, you have, I mean, to, to control the fire. I do care what kind of fire you have, but by the means in which you cook. I've cooked in a wheelbarrow, I've cooked in a trash can, a 55-gallon bucket, you know, in a hole in the ground. Um, but uh, when you can prepare a meal that you know rivals some of the greater restaurants in the world, and you didn't put no fancy in it, you know, I, I love to take a take a mule deer or a good whitetail and um, get a bone-in ribeye out of there. They're sort of like, you know, a little bigger than a lamb chop, but um, get them things seared up really well and then go back in there with some, some garlic, some onions, and a little thyme, and then put a red wine sauce in there and uh, pair that off with some garlic roasted mashed potatoes and some sourdough biscuits and bread pudding with whiskey cream sauce, and it's nearly a happy meal. Well, that beats anything I've had thus far it, it definitely beats anything i've ever cooked for you in camp. <laughs> Sa- sausage and wedding soup and, and <laughs> whatever's left but you know there day. uh and, and we all know it y'all do too and all your hunters that are listening to here you know the most important part of that deal is after you get that animal on the ground is how you take care of him that's how he's going to taste you know and i've uh you know i've quartered uh more elk than i could nearly tote out and packed them on a mule, and it's and it's all about what happens after it hits the ground. That's definitely a a huge and often overlooked part. Most definitely, I would agree with you one hundred ten percent. Um, I'm gonna go back to the Dutch oven for just a minute. Um, Ken. All right. Yep. So, 
one thing that I think is well, I don't know if it's popular or not. I know it. I know it shows up from time to time when you're when you're talking about or, or researching cooking in a Dutch oven. Do you ever um, do you ever bury your Dutch ovens to cook in them? I have, uh, you know, quite a few times. We did a did a turkey for a YouTube video to where you you buried in the ground and what you know you're actually really uh, controlling your heat a lot more. Uh, you know, I take a pair of post hole diggers, which I've run most of my life, one form, fashion, or the other. Uh, and I say you got a 16-inch Dutch oven, you dig a hole that's about 22 inches in diameter instead of that 16, uh, and you fill it about half full of wood. Uh, let the coals burn down uh, to where they're good and white. And I set that Dutch oven in there. A lot of times, either you know, I've done brisket that way, I've done a roast that way, uh, I've done hams for Christmas, whether they, you know, here, there, and yonders, and uh, however you prepare it and stick it in there, put some foil back over the top of it, and then put the lid on there to where it's sealed well, uh, you know, and then I slowly begin to just add about the same amount of coals that was under that oven on top of that oven, and then uh, cover it up with dirt. Uh, you have starved all the oxygen from that wood, and uh, you're going to run about three and a half to four hours of cooking time most of the time like that, unless you've got, you know, a foot deep in coals. And um, it's a good way to, uh, I always just called it Mother Nature's Crock-Pot, you know, because you can really slow something down and bake it. And you can, uh, you may hear the beagle barking in the background. He thinks there's monsters out there. I don't really know if there is or not, but uh, he's a good, he's a good camp dog. Ain't nobody going to sneak up on you, especially if there's something to eat in camp. And, uh, but it, it's a way to to uh, to slow cook something to make it really really tender, and uh, you know we've we got a, a video on it uh, on the turkey. I've missed. On our I haven't YouTube seen that one yet. I'll have to go watch. find that one. And um, it's uh, it's a pretty easy way to cook. You just got to dig a hole. And I would think if you're trying to cook that way, you would obviously. And you mentioned nature's crock pot, but I would think you would be cooking dishes that would have a lot of. Um, water or broth or something to keep from having necessarily hot spots yeah, or burning something. Yeah, and I always something. tell people it, when you cook something like that too, you know, I'll cut whatever it takes if it's two onions or four onions and just cut them straight in half and you use them as a bumper. You know, that's what that's what you're setting that meat down on because not only is it going to give flavor, but even if that onion gets really hot, uh, you know, and it begins to scorch, it's still going to keep that off the bottom. But... uh I'll always add, you know, depending on what it is, whether it be beef broth or chicken broth, bone broth, something like that to it. Uh, and everything's going to have at least one stick of butter, maybe five. Okay. All right. I don't know which way I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to try something in the cast, in the Dutch oven very soon. I think it'll probably, probably be the cornbread. Um, I just got to figure out where I'm going to do it. I'm, 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 I'm in an area that's not, uh, it's not so easy just to go out and, and, cook on coals on the ground so i'll, I'll figure some yeah. of that out but i will figure out a way to do it um and and very soon it's it's something that i've i've wanted to do for a long time and like i said other than cooking a few things in camp at a campfire where you're just setting the the dutch oven right next to the flame and and almost using it like a a pot you're just cooking over the yeah. you know with the fire I've just never really gotten into it, but it's something that I've I've really wanted to do. And and watching a lot of the stuff that you've <laughs> that you've made in your the videos that I've seen, 
uh, I really, I really, it's really encouraging. I really want to, I want to make it a success. And, and, and Nick and another good friend of ours, Tom, who's uh, co-host on the show from time to time, we do share quite a few camps, usually one or two a year. Um, and it would be nice to be able to do some of this, you know, in, in camp, share it with other people. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I got, I got faith in you, my friend. Well, that makes, that makes one of us, um, which is, which is better than I had yesterday. So we talked about the hunting a little bit, Ken, and I did have a couple of questions and Nick's actually already covered one of the ones that I kind of had on my little notepad here to go for, go over. But you said you don't get to hunt much anymore. Um, and I know I saw a video that you did not too long ago that was around quail, which, um, not a lot of quail around for people to hunt anymore like it used to be. But if you, the, the times that you can get out and hunt now, what, I mean, what's, what do you like to get out and hunt? Is it, is it big game or do you prefer, do you prefer small game? Does it matter? Uh, most of the time it's just about being able to go, um, one thing that I still enjoy, and uh, and I've done it oh, forever, I guess, seemed like, and um, I like to call couch. You know, we, we do a lot of just shooting them with the camera now instead of something else. I worked predator control on ranches here, there, and yonder for years. Run a, you know, I'd run a 200 uh, trap line. Um, made a living in the fur business for quite some time, and I always tell people, I said, y'all, y'all can cuss that coyote if you want to. But I said, he's a survivor. He lives in all 50 states. And I said, he's went from concrete to dirt to asphalt, and he's still there. You know, the yodel dog, I've heard him when I've been on ranches when he sings that serenade of a morning or when he puts me to bed at night. Uh, he's something I admire. Uh, and I, I, I do love to, to use a predator call. Uh, you know, I've, I've called them just by just bare mouth, and I've used a wood call. But it's... Uh, it's always a sight to see. And, uh, you know, there's been from mountain lions to bobcats to everything else, but it's um, something I enjoy. And I do I do still like to go get in a tree stand. You know, it's just, uh, like you said, we don't have as many quail as we used to. This, where we live, used to be covered up with blue quail and bob whites both. And uh, a lot of people might, I don't know, they might know my brother, Dr. Dale Rollins. He is the quail specialist of Texas. And, um, you know, coccidiosis and a lot of other things, you know, killed some of the quail out in our country for years. And they'll make a comeback one of these days. I hope so. Um, I haven't hunted them for many years for that for that very reason. There's just there's just not a lot around. And growing up, we had a, a elderly gentleman. I grew up on a, a tobacco farm, so we had... We had quite a few um, farms that we had a lease agreements with the landowners, and this one old gentleman had a couple of bird dogs, and his health wouldn't let him get out and, and chase quail anymore. But he really wanted the dogs to get out and have the experience. So, you know, yeah. he'd tell me all the time, man, just come by here and, and give them a holler, and they're, they're ready to go. And I would do that. Um, and I guess, you know, that's been – many years ago 30 30 plus years ago and i don't guess i've hunted quail since those days but it was just always something i really enjoyed it's just you know i don't have the dogs and with the you know the sparse populations we have now it's almost yeah. impossible to do it without a dog so yeah and they and they eat well too oh yeah they definitely eat well all right <laughs> yeah. no no arguments there my mother used to cook them all the time 
Um, my dad was a – that's the one thing my dad liked to actually get out and hunt. I can remember when I was really young, before I ever started doing any hunting with him, I remember he would he would go out on uh, a Saturday and, and bring back a few birds, and my mother would always fix them and I always enjoyed eating them, but I haven't had any yeah. in many, many years. Um Nick, Same. we're we're getting we're getting close to the top of the hour here, Nick, and I I I, I feel like I've kind of hogged about ninety percent of the time here. Um, you got anything on your plate to bring up? Man, I've I think I've learned more in this episode. <laughs> Honestly, like I'm just I'm just really excited to kind of jump out and just try some of this stuff. I don't know, like you know, we're we're home all the time, and I really wanna wanna start doing something. But one one of the things I've, I've got to ask you, Ken, is the two, my two favorite videos, I mean, other than the coffee one, I like that one a lot, but I really liked the ones you did with the fast food comparisons with McDonald's. Yeah. The Mc, the, the egg McMuffin and the, uh, and the, and the cowboy Big Mac. Those, what, yeah, what kind of gave you that idea? Like what? Yeah. That, I thought it's a great idea. I love it. Well, uh, it'd be a lot of times that, you know, I'd, we spent a lot of windshield time. Uh, driving up and down the road, and uh, I've eaten at every fast food place and truck stop there is in North America, I think, at one time or another. And uh, I told Shan one time, I said, you know, I think we ought to do some videos on just some comparisons of how we would make some things that fast food people make. And she said, well, let's just do the Big Mac, you know. And it's um, people probably know me, but now I'm gonna I'm gonna put a I'm going to put some meat on something if I'm cooking it, you know, and they they use like a what they call a one in 10 burger, which is, you know, there's 10 in a package and they might be weighing uh, before cook time and maybe four ounces at the most. And uh, we use a half a pound a piece on each one. And she, when we got through, Shan told me, she said, I, I don't know if you may have to slice that before you take a bite of it. And I said, well, we'll do something to it. But uh you know, it's got nearly 4 million views now on YouTube. And uh, so I figured we'd, if it works, hey, let's just do the, you know, the Egg McMuffin. And because um, I talked to some friends of mine up there in Canada and they said, you know, I don't know why they're calling this stuff Canadian bacon. It ain't even close. And I said, yeah, it's thin enough. You can read newspaper through it. And um, <laughs> so we, and like we just got through doing another one that'll be out uh, probably in about three weeks. Uh, can't say what it is, but it's. I say in the video, I'm not ever trying to run these people down because I've eaten at every one of these establishments and I was glad to have them, you know. And they, they fed a lot of people through these times that we're going through now. Uh, and they've made a lot of adjustments, you know, where people couldn't come inside, but they can sure take you down the drive up window. And uh, I tip my hat to them. Yeah, the, uh, the piece of ham on that sandwich. I was just, I'm like, I want one. I, I made, I made something similar this afternoon just because I wanted one so bad for me and my daughter. They're pretty good. You know, we, uh, we try to use that ham steak on there. That's at least a half inch thick or more. Oh man. <laughs> I'm getting hungry just thinking about it right now. Even the little things like you did in that video where, you know, I always wondered why well, I, I know how they get the round egg thing, but you know, using the tuna can, to, yeah. to get the eggs round and whipping it in the tuna can you know that that was just like little things like that like wow i never thought of that before is it really that simple um and yeah i got a kick out of it i also i also really like the fact that you it was funny that you made a comment about how 
the, the actual muffin contained all the all, everything in the middle so you wanted to make yours so that it couldn't be contained and was wrapping on around yeah. the inside of the muffin but yeah. uh yeah they were a trip man i i i really enjoyed those um but yeah i'm other than that steve i'm just i'm fired up to get after it man i'm gonna try the cornbread thing too i think my my wife loves cornbread and she she makes a lot of chili and uh that's a good starting point for me but i'm i'm hoping to get into it you know one of the things i've never been very educated in is the whole coals thing and stuff like that so that's something i've got to learn but i'm i i want to i want to pick up a book and and try it and watch some of these videos and yeah. i'm te- i'm telling you you need it. and i got the um in fact i've got it sitting right here with me the one that i picked up um is a taste of cowboy and i would definitely recommend that one i'm gonna be getting the other one here very soon possibly if not this week definitely next week um and i'll just uh, well so i was talking to i was talking to kent before the show um I was I was reading through some of the stories and and just looking at different recipes, basically thinking about things to to talk about tonight. And this was yesterday evening. I was sitting um, in the in our our den. My wife was sitting across from me. We had TV going, and I had the I had that cookbook in my lap, and I started reading about Leon. And I'm gonna read that um, on the on the show maybe in a week or two, but. Um, I busted out laughing. My wife looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And then I had to I had to relay this story to her. So I, I'll just say this. Not only does everything in this book look really good, and I can't wait to try every one of them at some point in time, but, again, some of the stories in here are really good. And the one about Leon goes to church was just, you know, I'll be honest with you, Ken. It, it reminded me of of some stories that I've heard and read in the past, um, akin to Jerry Clower, who I know I know who you know who Jerry is. Um, yes, sir. And even some stories that I remember my dad telling me when I was growing up. Uh, one of those that that almost immediately came to to mind was around a, a guy that he grew up with. My dad worked for and actually retired from Sears and Roebuck. And uh, this gentleman that my dad knew growing up had gone in to interview for a job, and the job was driving um, delivery trucks. And for most people that, that don't know, uh, Sears used to be a little a lot different than it is now. Most of what Sears did was mail order, and there was a lot of deliveries that they had drivers for to um, uh deliver orders to customers and somewhere during this uh this interview the interviewer asked him a question and i don't know i don't remember all the details but basically it was something along the lines of i'm gonna give you a scenario um and i want you to tell me what you would do if you were if you found yourself in this situation and basically what it was he was out making deliveries with his partner and in this case his partner's name was Leroy and the delivery was way outside their normal um, route and by the time they got the delivery finished it was late it was after dark he's driving back Leroy's gone to sleep in the passenger seat of the truck and he comes up on this this sharp curve and as he's as he's coming up on the curve on one side it's a steep embankment and on the other side you know it's it's blocked he can't can't go to the to the left and he can't go to the right and as he comes around the curve 
there's a car passing another vehicle head on in his lane. Said, what do you do in that situation? And the guy thought for a minute and he said, I'm going to wake up Leroy. Yeah. He said, why are you going to wake up Leroy? And he said, because Leroy ain't never seen a wreck like we fixing that. Yeah. And supposedly that was a that, true story. Friend. Now, whether or not it was, I honestly yeah. don't know, but uh, I've always chosen to believe that that really happened. So, uh, But anyway, Leon Goes to Church reminded me of that story for some reason. So, Well, when we, uh, you know, that's the first cookbook that we come out with in uh, 2015. And um, it's uh, Amazon has picked it as one of the top 100 books that you should own in a lifetime. And uh, it has done very well for us. Uh, we wanted people, when they got a book like that, it's sort of more like a coffee table cookbook because Shen's got some great pictures because whether it be a food picture or a picture of a sunset or pictures of cowboys, she took every one of them. You know, we wrote the book. We did all the pictures. And... Um, It'll feed your heart and soul, but also your stomach. And uh, the new book that came out this last March was a bestseller. It's called Faith, Family, and the Feast. And we took that title really from our YouTube audience because we have a large faith-based crowd, a crowd that loves family and a crowd that loves America. You know, and it's uh, that's three things that have meant a lot to me going down the trail for so many years. And uh, it's got some great stories in it, too, as, uh, you know, we... We started the deal when the COVID deal jumped out there. We were doing two videos a week, and uh, people got after me. You know, they say, hey, you know what? I just like to hear you tell a story. Uh, so we uh, sort of went back to old Roosevelt's days and did some of them fireside chats, and um, uh, and they were popular. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't do more of them than we got put in there for a while. Uh, but there's a story that everybody needs to read in that book, uh, and that's about Frank the Wonder Dog. And uh, I don't care what you go through in life, if you'll use Frank's philosophy, and he's a Lou Ellen setter, uh, you'll get through every day. I look forward to reading it. Yep, I'm definitely going to check that out. And, and, and actually, Steve, you know, sitting here this whole time, I've been thinking, I think what I'm going to do is I've always wanted to be able to make something to take it to camp or take it to a gathering because I never have. I've never brought a dish anywhere or am not known for making anything usually i show up and say hey guys i brought the hash browns and i throw them on the table <laughs> so i'm gonna get the i'm gonna get the, the 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 cookbook i'm gonna pick something out of it i'm gonna learn to do it and i'm going to have something to bring to camp if it's not this year it's going to be next year for sure when we have it and that's my goal and if anybody wants to join me out of our listeners in that goal That'd be something great that we could talk about in the community, too. There you go. And uh, Food is always meant to bring people together. That's what my mother told me. She said, remember, remember this. She said, we feed people, we don't judge them. And she said, there's more, more than holds up the table than the legs. It's a family around it. And uh, if you can put food on the table and share it with family and friends, well, you've got a happy meal every day. Yep. I agree with you, sir. I agree with you. Kent, we've kept you 10 minutes over what we said we were going to. I could sit here and talk to you for two more hours, my friend. Um, but I always try not to, to overstay my welcome. Maybe we could talk you into doing this again in a, a few months down the road, get something fresh to talk about or or 
I don't know. We'll we'll talk about your next cookbook or something. But man, I I have really enjoyed talking to you. This has been an absolute treat for me. Same. Well, Stephen, I I thank y'all so much. You know, and if if people want to get into cast iron and they need a little help, you know, you just type in Kent Rollins on YouTube, and we've got a big playlist of cast iron, the problems you might have, how to take care of it, everything else, you know. But uh, I ask you to check out our website too, just KentRollins.com, and we got a lot of stuff on there, but uh, it's a new video comes out every Wednesday. Today it was a Nashville spicy hot smoked chicken leg, and I guarantee you, you need a fire extinguisher for them because uh, they are got a bite in them. And I will be sure to include links to both uh, your YouTube right. channel and your website in the show notes for this episode, Kent. Um, again, really right. do appreciate you you taking the time. It's funny, your Nashville um, chicken video today answered one of the questions I was going to ask you, believe it or not. And that was um, when you're using a hot sauce, which kind of hot sauce do you prefer, a, a water-based like Tabasco or a vinegar-based like Texas Pete? And then you brought up that bottle of Crystal. And I said, well, that answers yeah. that question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's been my pleasure to be on with you two fellers. Um, you know, we've talked long enough now that I'm going to call you family. And uh, I know you're good people. I know that from the voice. And... Uh, I thank y'all for what you do, for putting content out there that's good for everybody that a family can gather around a table and listen to. That's what we're here for. We we definitely appreciate you joining our little family here, Kent. We really do. For everyone listening, hope you've enjoyed this. Um, hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And Nick and I will be back with uh, a new topic or a new person next week or two. So stay tuned. Talk to y'all soon. Take care.